Welcome to Built to Go, a van life program. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 191, and we're going to talk about the realities of electric van life. Is it time to ditch the internal combustion engine for your next van? Can you build out an electric van? We will talk about it. We'll also talk about the realities of a no-build involving no permanent battery. Can you just charge everything you need? And we'll also visit a place in Mexico that has an amazing story, but you can see some evidence. Yes, we're going to do that. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much. Before we get started today, I want to mention that I'm about to go on another trip. It's a very sudden thing. I didn't know I was doing this trip. And rather than just tell you about the trip, I thought I would make it into a game. So I have created this Where Is Jeff hashtag. And if you follow that on any of the social media stuff that I do, which, you know, YouTube, even TikTok, Facebook Reels, my normal groups and stuff, Discord, etc., I will post the stuff there. And basically the idea is that you have to guess where I am each day. Now, podcast folks, this isn't going to work so much for you. This is a visual thing. But there's going to be short videos of me in a place. You have to figure out where I am, and there'll be a scoring system and stuff. So I'll have a link in the show notes to the introduction video for this on YouTube, and you can start there, or you can just search the hashtag, where is Jeff, and go from there. But I think it'll be a lot of fun. I'm going to some really cool places, and I thought I'd bring you along in a little bit of a different way. And I promise at the end, I will tell you all about this crazy trip I'm doing. Let's get to the main topic here, which is, is it time to consider an all-electric van? Now, Winnebago has a prototype van called the Winnebago ERV2, and you can find YouTube videos about it. They're basically letting influencers borrow this van and live in it for a while. And the thing is entirely electric. No gasoline, no diesel, no propane. It's all electric. And this is to demonstrate the concept that, yes, you can use an electric van for a camper. It's a prototype. This isn't something you can just go buy. And while Winnebago does sell Class B RVs, which is a van, with all electric systems, meaning there's a giant battery in the back that runs at 48 volts that powers things like air conditioning and stuff like that, that exists today. You can actually buy that. Those have an internal combustion engine, so you can drive them like a normal van and then just use the big battery in the back. This is a new thing. This is a van that has nothing but electric. And I think this is where we're heading. I think 10 years from now, most of us who are buying new camper vans are going to be using electric rigs. But the question is, where are we now? And I know I've talked about this a lot. I mention electric vehicles quite a bit because they are the future. But I think they're still the future. And I have a number of reasons why. And We'll just get it right out there. It's range. Range anxiety, as they call it, has always been a big deterrent to EVs. People are concerned that they're going to run out of power on the road. And it's a real concern. Now, if you're driving a Tesla or an electric Hyundai or something like that, this is much less of a concern than it used to be because there's charging stations just about everywhere. There's all kinds of software that lets you plan your route. And it's, it's much less of an issue than it used to be. And it's going to continue to be much less of an issue, especially now that almost all the manufacturers have decided that the Tesla type charger is the way to go. We're not going to have any of this like, oh, I don't have the plug for this. And it's not none of that. It's finally they've standardized that. It only took them 10 years. 
that's all fine and good. And you can buy an EV now that'll get you 300 miles, which is pretty close to what most gasoline engines will get you. So I feel like that's kind of a solved problem for electric vehicles. Now, ideally, you want to be able to charge your electric vehicle at home. You want to be able to plug it in at night and have it charge overnight. And the big problem I see is for folks like me who don't have a place to do that, well, we're stuck going to supermarkets and mall parking lots and stuff like that. So that problem still needs to be solved. But vans are something different. Vans are much larger vehicles. And because of what a van is, their shape has a limit on how aerodynamic they can be. You're never going to have an incredibly aerodynamic van because Folks, a van, by definition, is a rolling brick. <laughs> you can help, you can smooth things out a bit, but you're still dealing with a brick because the whole idea is to have all this internal capacity. That takes up space, that space gets in the way of the air. You get it. Also, uh, because you have all that space, these things are heavier than most vehicles, uh, even when you don't consider cargo. So vans have a special challenge with EV, but that doesn't mean that challenge isn't being met. Electric vans are everywhere now. I mean, I see the Amazon Rivian vans all the time now. They've become normal in my neighborhood. And, and heck, they just announced that consumers can buy them, as I, I talked about last week, for like $83,000. So these are available. You can, right now, go buy an electric van and build it out as a camper. But range, again. And really, in reality... We're talking about 100 miles here. It's a little bit more than that under certain circumstances, but you're going to always want to leave a buffer. It doesn't do you very much good to roll into your campsite on that last mile of charge and then realize you have no way to do anything to get moving again. And then you might think, well, there's 110-volt plugs all over the place. Can I just charge with those? The answer is yes. But if you say you have an e-transit, a Ford e-transit, it could take 19 hours <laughs> to charge your van. It, it takes a really long time to do this over 110 volts. Basically, you have to limit yourself to 100 mile chunks with a good charging station at the other end. It requires a lot of planning, but it's not impossible. It's absolutely doable. I know people who travel in such a way that they never drive more than 80 miles in a day. That's their lifestyle. That's what they choose to do. And if for them, an electric van could absolutely work. Now, what about campgrounds? Why don't you just jump from campground to campground? Campgrounds have power, right? Well, yes. I mean, that is an option. Now, campgrounds are starting to get savvy to the idea of electric vehicle charging. You're going to find a wide variety of how they handle it. Some, they're not going to care. You can just plug in right at the campground and they have extra power at the campground. I mean, they have 50 amp circuits there that with the proper adapters you could use to charge your maybe a little bit faster than at a house, but that's going to cost the campground a lot of money in power. So eventually I'm imagining they're going to have electric vehicle surcharges because you're going to be taking so much power. Some of these places already have an electric heat and electric AC surcharge. So I imagine they'll be first on it. And another way campgrounds are handling this is they will install charging stations at the campground because it has become somewhat popular to tow trailers with Teslas. People do that. Although they find that the Tesla's range gets cut about in half when they're towing a trailer. But what if you just brought a generator with you? Well, you're going to bring an internal combustion engine with you to charge your EV? I mean, 
wouldn't it be better just to have an internal combustion engine to begin with? I mean, you'll have to figure that out for yourself. But we have to talk about numbers here to, to get into your head what we're talking about. So a Ford e-Transit has a 68,000 watt hour battery in it. That's a big battery. Your 200 amp hour lithium battery that you might have in the back of your van, which is not a small battery, 200 amp hours is a pretty good size. That's 2,400 <laughs> watt hours. So comparing those two, it's 68,000 watt hours compared to 2,400 watt hours. There's no comparison. And so if you were thinking, oh, well, maybe, maybe I'll just put a lot of solar panels on. No, no. If you put solar panels on there, you're going to need 57 amp hours of charge per mile. Okay, so if you had 680 watts of solar on your roof, in an hour, you would get enough power to make your vehicle move one mile. Solar is really not an option for recharging EVs at this point. Also, another weird little thing about EVs, because there's a motor powering the wheels directly, they go through tires about 20% faster. It's a minor thing when you figure you don't have to worry about oil changes or all that other maintenance, but tires, yeah, you're going to go through tires faster with an EV. Now, let's talk about a build. So, you've got this EV, and you're going to build it out. What's different about building out an EV than building out a traditional internal combustion engine van? Well, I think one big difference is that you don't want to mess with any of the EV stuff. It's not like you're going to tap into that massive battery that's in there and use it for your, the rear of your vehicle. The voltages are not really compatible. I mean, they can be anywhere from 300 to 400 volts. And while, yeah, there are systems that will convert them, they're complex. I know the E-Transit has a water-cooled converter system that will allow it to recharge the 12-volt battery that all EVs have. And I honestly, at this point, where this is new technology, I don't think we want to mess with that. So if you're going to build out a van, I think you should build out the van the way you would build out a trailer, which is that the back is completely completely independent. It has its own battery, it has its own ground and power, so you're going to run two wires to every component. No more just screwing into the chassis. Although you could ground to the chassis, I suppose. I would be afraid of that. I would definitely want to make sure you had a good ground because these vehicles are built a little bit different. You would basically be building out a little cabin on a vehicle that had nothing to do with the vehicle. This means you can't charge your batteries while you're driving. Because there's no alternator. There's there's no way to charge your rear batteries while you're driving. So you're going to need to charge with solar or with some other way of charging. And that can be a big problem. I know for people who drive a lot, who are camping overnight and drive a lot every day, they don't have to worry about solar. But you would have to worry about solar because it would be the only way to charge those batteries in the back. So that makes it not ideal for winter. Also, you have no engine heat. To speak of there's an electric heater in these vans but it uses power from the main battery you're not going to have the ability to use a calorifier or anything like that to heat the back of the van in my ambulance i can heat the back of the van just by flipping a switch i would not be able to do that in an electric van unless i drew power from the main battery somehow and again you don't want to do that the whole limit here is range and you don't want to tap into that for anything unless you have to now could you run the ac in the vehicle while you were just sitting there, yeah, that wouldn't hurt anything. You absolutely could, but you'd be drawing down on that battery. So if you were in a situation where you could camp at a charging station, sure, maybe you could use the AC there, but 
you'd have to be very cautious because just like the starter battery is sacred in an internal combustion engine vehicle, the main drive battery would be sacred in these vehicles. You're going to have some more space because you don't have all those engine components, but you're also going to have less space because you have this massive battery there too you have to work around. So you'd have to be very, very precise in how you build things. So bottom line is yes you can build out an electric camper van right now you have some challenges you're going to require a lot of planning and it would absolutely not be a great vehicle for heading out in deep into blm land or anything like that but if you were going to do urban camping campground to campground kind of camping short distances like you wanted to go to new england for example in the summer and go campground to campground to campground an electric camper van could actually be a great option and and the savings you would have have on fuel costs could potentially make it worth doing. Now, unfortunately, in the U.S. here, we only have big electric vans. We don't have the little ENV200s and things like that. All we can do is get the massive transits and now the Rivians. But hey, if you're committed to electric vehicles, it could be a fun project. But I think it's going to cost you a lot of money. So uh, hey, if you're doing it, let me know. I'd love to see how it goes. Tech Talk. Let's talk about no builds and battery powered devices. So this, since I started this podcast a couple of years ago, technology has changed. And at the beginning, I didn't think it was really that practical to not have a main battery. So whether it was a Jackery or a hardwired battery, a leisure battery for the back of your van, I was convinced that you needed that to have a successful camping experience. And now I'm much less sure of that because I see a lot of USB chargeable things that solve a lot of your needs for while you're camping. There are puck lights that are USB chargeable. The charge lasts for days. You could easily solve all your lighting problems just by recharging them every once in a while. That's a simple thing to do. A little solar panel would be all you needed for that. Or you could do it while you were driving. Lighting, simple. Absolutely, you can do that without having a main battery. What about some of the other things? How about a fan? I need fans. I think fans are very important. And well, with my venti fan that I've talked about a whole bunch, uh, that thing will easily last a whole day on a charge and uh, has a little light in it. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I don't need to hardwire my fan either. I can just charge that too. What about water? Well, there's a number of ways to do water without any power at all. But these USB chargeable pumps that just pop right on the five gallon jugs actually are great and they last a long time. So you could do that too. You don't have to charge these things every day either. You charge them like once a week or so. They even have showers that are battery powered. I did a video about that. Uh, they work great and you don't have to have a big battery. So in short, things have changed. You absolutely can build out your van now without installing an electrical system at all. You just have each component be separately chargeable. Now, what are the downsides to this? Well, obviously you need a way to charge them and you're gonna to have to be mindful about that charging. You're gonna to have to keep on the charging else you're gonna have dead stuff. Cooking, there's really no battery powered cooking solution I'm aware of, but you can still use propane and butane just like you always have. Heat, mm, there's the problem. There's really no simple standalone electric heating solution that I'm aware of. I mean, you can buy some clothing that has electric heat in it now. There's electric coats and vests, but I mean, that's not really what we're talking about here. 
to heat the inside of your van using this no-build methodology with no big battery, I think you're going to have to rely on propane or butane or something like that. But heck, maybe two years from now that won't be the case. And if that changes, I'll let you know. Product review. Another thing that's changed is these electric charging banks. These, these little pocket-powered electric charging banks. I, I have one in my hand here for the YouTube folks. Um, I've got a couple of them. This one in my hand is a, a Pisen, the names again, P-I-S-E-N. This is a 20-watt charger. It's about the size of two granola bars, I guess. Weighs, I don't know, maybe half a pound. But uh, what's changed about these is that they're now PD devices. They will charge the new iPhones and new Samsung phones and whatever fast. And I, I think they're great. I think if you have not purchased a pocket battery bank in the last year or so, it's time to reconsider because they're not very expensive. So uh, this one here I got in Canada in an emergency situation. I have not been able to find a link to it. But I have another one that's called an INIU. INIU? I-N-I-U. <laughs> and uh, it's the same idea. It's a 20,000 milliamp battery, and that's more than enough to charge any phone on the market. And again, it will do it fast. Now, the NEU comes with two USB-A ports. That's the normal kind of USB port. And it also has a USB-C port, and that is a double USB-C port, meaning that it will charge the battery, but it'll also reverse and charge your phone. So that's pretty handy. And it has a little flashlight, and it has a cute glowing paw. But the point is, is that this is only 30 bucks, and it's the kind of thing you can throw in your backpack or throw in your pocket, and you can charge your cameras, phones, whatever, very well, fast, and without worrying about running out of battery. And it, honestly, if you, if you haven't gotten a recent model, one of these, and I don't care what brand you buy, Anchor is always the one that seems to be the best quality. Also more expensive, of course, that's how that goes. But uh, if you haven't done this recently, it's time to take a look. So I'll have a link in the show notes to the INIU, the NEU that I have used. It works fine, but any of these will work fine. I also have an old one that I bought five years ago that still works, but it's USB 1.1. It has 10,000 milliamp hours. It's got a decent sized battery, but it charges so slow that I hardly ever use it because I have to basically have my phone hooked up to it for two hours for it to charge, and it's just not as convenient. Tales from the road. I am not sure if I've told this story before, but as I enter my older years, I reserve my right to tell stories over and over again. So whether I have or haven't told the story before doesn't matter. I get a free pass simply because I'm an old guy. At least I think I owed that because I've given that free pass to other old guys. <laughs> anyway, I was driving the Tiki Bago from Oregon to Illinois, and I had to go through Montana because I had to do something for Team Rubicon up in, in Montana. And after I, I finished my duties with Team Rubicon, I started driving to Illinois, and I started having problems, um, <laughs> which is not surprising. This is a 1973 Winnebago. I uh, was driving across the country in April, which is still kind of winter up there. So it was it was a harrowing trip. But the worst trouble I had was in Montana. 
the fuel filter started clogging. Now, the 50-year-old fuel tank, the fuel tanks had never been changed, and this vehicle had sat at one point for 10 years. So the gasoline went bad and all the sludge formed, and the previous owner had cleaned all that out to make it work. But he warned me that you still had to change the fuel filters often. So I had extra fuel filters, but it didn't help. And part of it not helping is that I didn't realize that this vehicle had three fuel filters. There's a fuel filter for each tank. It had two tanks and there was another main one for the engine. And I couldn't figure out which one was clogged. So the vehicle sputtered to a stop in rural Montana. In fact, I didn't even know where I was until somebody stopped. Actually, a semi stopped because he said, you are in such trouble being broken down here because there's nowhere to go to get your vehicle fixed. Even a tow truck was 50 miles away. Well, it turned out I was in Lame Deer, Montana, which is just a fascinating name. I'm sure there's a story about that. And this is in the Cheyenne Indian Reservation in Montana. I was concerned. <laughs> I, I mean, again, if you're going to break down in anything, an RV is probably the best thing to break down in because, oh no, I'm broken down, but I have a house. You know, it could be worse, but I had to get to Illinois. I wasn't thrilled with being there. So fuel filter problems are interesting because you can usually start the vehicle and drive. It's just after a few minutes, it dies because the fuel filter is blocking the fuel flow and the engine won't run. So I was able to start it and I talked with the truck driver and he said he thought there was a garage about a mile away that was run by some folks living on the reservation. And I thought, well, all right, I'm going to at least head there. It's flat. And if nothing else, they may have a phone and I can figure something out. So I rolled in there, and sure enough, it was a garage. And I went in the office, and um, they didn't have any mechanics working that day. One of them said, uh, well, maybe Albert can do it. And I didn't know who Albert was, but I'm like, okay, let's give Albert a chance. I mean, this, this isn't the most complicated stuff here. We're talking about changing fuel filters, but it's one of these things that you have to know where they are and how to do it. And this kid comes out. He, he was maybe 15, no shoes, gym shorts, no shirt. And he says, yeah, okay, I can do this. And I'm like, okay, uh, what the heck? I don't have a whole lot of options here. I give him the fuel filters. I tell him what the problem is. And he grabs a couple of tools and just climbs right under the RV. No, no mechanics helper or anything. He's just in the dirt in the parking lot, just climbs right under there, hardly any clothing on. And he spends an hour banging and clinking and tanking on things. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, I, I hope he can do this. I hope he doesn't get hurt. I, I was just at his mercy. After an hour, he comes out and he's completely filthy. He's got grease all over him. And he's like, okay, you should be all set. I actually found out that one of your filters was on backwards. So I fixed that too. And I was overjoyed. He had replaced all the fuel filters and it only took an hour. That was fine. I was just like, wow, you are like, exactly the person I needed right at this moment. And so I walked with him back into the office and said, okay, thank you guys so much. I'm so thrilled that you were here and able to help me out. How much do I owe you? And they said, oh no, that's okay. Like they didn't want any payment. This was just something they did for somebody who was in trouble on the side of the road. And I was completely blown away by this because I'll tell you what, I would have paid a lot of money to have that fixed because this was the difference between me being stuck in rural Montana 
and driving home. <laughs> so uh, I did not let that stand. I, I withdrew a few hundred dollar bills from my pocket and left them on the counter and walked away because there was no way I wasn't going to pay for that. But just a really nice thing these folks did for me and i will always remember their charity and i will continue to look for ways to pay that forward because the difference they made in my life at that moment was huge it was enormous and they knew they had me at a disadvantage or if they thought that way you know there are definitely some mechanics who would have just said well i've got this guy trapped and now i can do whatever i want <laughs> no all they thought was, hey, we have to help this guy in need. So um, just a good, good way to be. Thank you very much, Albert, and your family who ran this repair shop in Lame Deer, Montana. I will always remember you fondly, and I will try to be as good a person as you folks apparently are. A place to visit. This is going to turn into another tale from the road because it's it's such a story but um on going through the panama canal we went to a place called watulco which begins with an h although it used to begin with a g it was guatulco in the nautil language of the mayan folks who lived there before european contact that name means the place where people worship wood and the name persists i don't know that there's a lot of wood worshiping going on there except i actually do so so here's the story Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, long before European contact, an old man with pale skin and a long, scraggly white beard washed up on the shore of this fishing village in Oaxaca, Mexico, or what is now Oaxaca, Mexico. And he had this large piece of wood that was vaguely cross-shaped. And the natives recognized him instantly as Quetzalcoatl. This was their god, or one of their gods, and they were incredibly thankful that this deity would visit them. And as he left, he left the piece of wood for them. So they set it up as a shrine and they quote unquote worshipped the wood. In fact, this became a pilgrimage. People from as far away as Peru would come all the way to southern Mexico to pay homage to this piece of wood and the visiting of Quetzalcoatl. Now, when the Europeans got there, pale skin, long beards, there was some confusion because is this the return of Quetzalcoatl? And then there was the issue of the cross or the piece of wood shaped like a cross. So the uh, Spaniards um, took a little bit of advantage of this and were able to just say, oh, yeah, 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 that's us. We're back. Yeah. And uh, oh, yeah, the cross there. We know the cross. Let us teach you the true way to worship the cross. And uh, yeah, you've seen this movie before. So what happened, though, is that piece of wood, um, a, a, a guy by the name of Cavendish, an English pirate or privateer however you want to look at it who was definitely not a fan of the spanish there was a whole big protestant versus catholic thing going on then um saw this rough cross and thought it was blasphemy he he did not like that people were worshiping this cross and uh he tried to cut it down and uh, according to legend and folks this is all legend his axes broke as he tried to cut it and then he tried to burn it and ended up burning the entire village down but the cross remained so cavendish went off in frustration but the villagers knew that their worshipped wood was in danger so they cut it into pieces 
that does not explain how they were able to do that when Cavendish couldn't, and formed it into actual crosses, Christian crosses, and then sent it to cathedrals and churches all around the region. Well, I got to see one of these. In the town of Santa Maria Huatulco, there's a church, and it's a very nice, modest church. And they have one of these crosses allegedly carved from this piece of wood that Quetzalcoatl came in on. And um, it was just an interesting moment to be able, there, to, to, be able to look at that cross and, and be attached to that legend somehow. Because now I have seen a piece of wood that a Mayan god floated ashore on if one is to believe the legend. Now, this is a church, not a scientific institution. I doubt they have done any carbon dating on this wood or counted the rings or even determined what kind of wood it is. But the cross is there and the story is there and it's an interesting place to visit. So if you would like to visit this, maybe you're doing the Alaska to Argentina drive. You can go to Huatulco. It's on the southwest coast of Oaxaca. Now, Huatulco is the tourist town, and the town that the tourists go to is called La Crucecita, the little cross. You don't want to go there. You want to go up into the mountains just a little bit to Santa Maria Huatulco, which is not a tourist place. This is Nobody speaks English there. This is definitely a town for the locals. But you'll find the church easy enough, and they don't mind if you go in. And the cross is just in a little vestibule to the right. There's a few signs in Spanish, but there's not a lot to tell you what's going on there. So make sure you research it. Hey, this is one of the things you can experience while you travel. And uh, I found it fascinating from an historic and a sociologic point of view. Resource recommendation. Folks, I would love to kill this right now and that is this idea that you can make a heater out of a candle and a flower pot i know you've seen 800 videos on tiktok and reels and whatever the heck else showing that you can heat a whole small apartment with just a few candles and you can't you can't you can't you can't get more heat out of a candle than a candle will produce and i've had this discussion with so many folks who just I, I'm just not able to explain it to them. They somehow think that the pot is going to absorb the heat of the candle and then radiate it off in a way that's going to provide more heat than just a candle. But it can't. It's physics. It absolutely can't. And there's an article that explains this very, very nicely. Uh, it's at bigissue.com. I'll have a link in the show notes. And it points out that not only doesn't this work, now, a whole apartment building burned down because somebody was doing this in their house. Candles are dangerous just in general. And when you have a whole bunch of candles together, you actually produce enough heat that you can light something on fire. But not enough heat to actually stay warm. There's countless videos debunking this. So please, folks, the candle heater thing is just a myth. It doesn't work. I know you'll find people that say it does, but please look at this article and realize that it just doesn't. Well, folks, thank you very much for episode 191. As I mentioned, I'm going to be traveling coming up, so I don't know what the next episodes are going to look like, but I will try my best to get them out on schedule. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember this quote from Aesop. No act of kindness, no matter how small, is ever wasted. <laughs> <laughs>